Hello and welcome to The Mock Review with Ben and Drew. I'm Ben Garmo. And I'm Drew Evans. Well, since the last time we had a chance to talk to everyone, the 2020 to 2021 AMTA case was released. That case, as I'm sure many of you are aware, is Joey Petrillo as administrator of the estate of Genesis Petrillo, the Harper Martini and Peony Estates. That case was authored by the great people on the Civil Case Committee. We are absolutely thrilled to be joined today by Mike Gelfand, the chair of the Civil Case Committee. Mike joined us two years ago to discuss MTS v. Danny Kozak, and we're thrilled to have him back on the podcast today to discuss the newest case that he helped write. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Excited to be here again. And we are thrilled to have you here today to just get into everything we can about this case. So uh, two years ago, when you came on the podcast, you told us your origin story. So we'll kind of skip over that for now and and get right into the meat of things. Uh, Obviously, you know, it's been a pretty uneventful couple of months for the uh, Civil Case (laughs) Committee. Um, So, Mike, as, as I think our listeners are almost certainly aware, now just, what, maybe five or six weeks ago, AMTA made the decision to scrap the original case topic that was announced uh, for this upcoming season and go to a completely new case. Uh, we had a chance to talk to Sam a couple episodes ago, and he talked a little bit about how things were going behind the scenes. But of course, you know, you were the person making sure the trains ran on time. And so I want to talk to you first about that. Uh, what has it been like behind the scenes for the committee? Uh, and then how did you handle that as chair, having to switch from the case topic that you'd presumably been working on for a little while to this brand new case topic that turned into what we have today? Yeah, it's been a crazy couple of months. I think that, frankly, it's been a crazy going back to March for, I think, everybody in this entire community. And AMP is no exception. The Civil Case Committee is no exception. And I heard the episode with Sam. I'm glad that the greater AMTA community got to meet him because he is one, he is a beast. He's an absolute beast of a worker and a person and one of the key people on our committee. And the fact that we got this done is largely thanks to him in addition to all the other committee members, but Sam is truly great. So I just wanted to comment on that. That was a great episode and, and he did a great job. Um, in terms of how this all went down, um, in ter- the, the decision to change the topic, was obviously well thought out. And in terms of the reasoning for that, I would refer people, because that was really, that that, that fell on the president more than anyone else, president of the executive committee. So I would refer people to Brandon's opening remarks at the board meeting. It was a difficult situation to get that decision, you know, later than we were, you know, later than we would normally announce a case topic and to obviously switch to a direction that, made everybody comfortable and could be the genesis of a case that we're excited about. And I'm thankful that we came up with a topic. We actually came up with it from scratch. We had It wasn't one of the topics that we had considered before, but we got together as a committee and really put our heads together and said, you know, if we're going to change topics, we're going to make something that is really fun for everybody and that everybody can enjoy. And I think we were able to do that. And, and it was a tough process going through COVID. My office opened right around the time that the decision was made to change the topic. <laughs> so I was faced with the prospect of now going back into work full time and really getting back into that grind at the same time as that was heating up. So it was definitely a more labor intensive and stressful process than two years ago, but it was still extremely enjoyable. And we are 
enthusiastic as can be about the product that came out. You know, Mike, you kind of referred to something in there that I want to follow up on, which is sort of the topic of uh, actually selecting uh, the case topic. Can you tell us a little bit more? You just described how once the decision was made that uh, the old topic was going to get uh, scrapped, that the committee sort of put their heads together and came up with a new topic. My understanding, and, and please correct me, correct me if I'm wrong, is that that's not always how these topics are chosen, that sometimes there are outside topics suggested, or maybe there are more people involved in that process. So was that similar or different to previous iterations of case topics you've been involved in choosing in terms of how this new topic was selected? Well, we had other topics on the table because when the initial topic was selected, we had both previous topics we hadn't selected and topics that have been submitted, case proposals that have been submitted from the outside. We went through all of those, went through their pros and cons, but we decided to go this direction because it was somebody made the pitch and the committee felt it was the right way to go. In that respect, it was a little different because we brought in something new completely sort of at the end of the end of the day, but we decided that that was going to be the best case. Interesting. And once you, just to kind of cover the rest of the background here before we get into the case itself, um, once you picked this topic and then you sort of realized, okay, and I know there was the decision pretty soon after that to give you guys a little bit more time, um, which was uh, oddly somewhat of a debate at the board meeting, which was still surprising to me, uh, but that's a <laughs> that's a note for another day. Um, but so you find out, okay, you've got this new topic and you've got X number of weeks to knock it out. You guys ended up releasing it the sort of the last day that, that you were um, able to. So how did that process go in terms of dividing up the work and making sure the case got done? I mean, it's what, almost 150 page document uh, in the fairly short time frame that you had. I made a point the last time I was on the podcast and I'm not the type to do spreadsheets and charts and plan everything out. Well, this time around, somebody did write out a very detailed proposal with detailed synopses of what each proposed witness was going to say. So we had a much more detailed roadmap at the beginning this time because we knew we had a shorter turnaround and it was very important to make sure that everybody was on the same page from the very beginning. That said, just as we did two years ago, we divvied up the affidavits and reports so that for the most, for the vast majority of people on the committee, I think almost everybody, they can point to somebody in the case and say, that person is me. I wrote that person. I at least did the first draft, which ended up being 70 to 80% of what that draft was. So the committee as a whole, everybody, everybody put in a ton of work and everybody can take pride in what was produced. Well, I have one more question for you before I think Drew's got some questions about the case itself. And that's, you know, a lot of people had input on this case, but I really want to know, where did you get the clowns who wrote all of the defense uh, <laughs> pleadings? And why did you hire such an incompetent law firm to handle that aspect of the case? Well, I mean, my understanding is that the winery had some good friends in the media and they reached out to their to their media contacts, and that was the law firm that was uh, referred to them. If, if you want, if you want to make sure that you have attorneys that get you good publicity when you have to defend yourself against a wrongful death case, that's the firm to turn to. <laughs> the people who haven't read the case yet are sitting here like, "What on earth are you talking about?" <laughs> I, I hear they have a spotless 
undefeated record in court. So, I mean, it's not right. bad. And at least one of them is licensed to practice law. <laughs> right. That's always good that at least one of the name partners is licensed to practice law. Yeah. The other one's in the process of getting in and getting approved to do that. So we'll see. <laughs> there you go. Well, anyway, uh, it is, you know, obviously this is about the case itself. Um, and, and we kind of want to ask a couple of questions about the case. And I think that the place I'll start was the place that I kind of had when I first started reading the case, which is this is a dual defendant case, which uh, I will admit on a personal level I'm super excited about since Bancroft and Covington was my personal favorite when I tried them in college. But, you know, what was the decision to go back to this dual defendant style of case? And are there any concerns or have there been anything done to account for that for the defense when you have to prepare essentially two very different defense cases? Those are both great questions. I'll try and take them uh, one by one. We actually got to the dual defendant somewhat accidentally. We knew that we wanted to do something to keep it interesting. One of the key pieces of feedback on Kozak, which ironic given like the complaints about there's so many witnesses, people felt the rounds got boring and the rounds got repetitive. And it was always the same theories, same witnesses. We wanted to do something to spice it up and we felt that the best way to do that, although I'm not usually a fan of two separate defenses. I think it works here because you have the same set of facts and you have some overlapping arguments that can be made and some arguments that are completely different where you have a battery, essentially intentional killing situation versus violating a statute. And the initial thought was to just have, you know, one defendant regardless. But then we figured, well, if it's battery, it makes a lot more sense to have the individual be the defendant. And if it's the winery violating the statute as to how they were supposed to use and store pesticides, then just logically speaking, the winery should be the defendant. And I think that I, I appreciate the amount of work that has to go into it. I think that um, that is always a consideration of mine when working with how to put these cases together and how much to burden the defense with. But I think that it's going to make for fun rounds and it's going to make, and we try to write the witnesses so that most of the witnesses at least could be used with some notable exceptions for both case theories. And so we're hoping to see just a lot more variety and a lot more fun. Well, the, the next thing that I kind of noticed when, when first starting the case was that you've got these swing witnesses as experts um, obviously with the, the priority, which can you just explain to us what exactly that whole priority business is and, and what made you guys decide to do something like that? Okay. This has been done to my knowledge once before in AMTA in what was called the happy land case with the princess beads where the experts weren't specifically tied to a side. The, the plaintiff or the defense has the priority to call their desired expert if they so choose they announce at the beginning of captain's meeting whatever the form says it specifically takes place if they choose to exercise priority the expert is theirs but if they don't there is somewhat of a risk that the other side will call the expert because again that allows for at least a little bit of variety in rounds that wasn't there before and maybe if some teams really want to go with something off the ball off the wall this gives them a chance to do it and i think that you should be able to prepare a cross-examination for an expert that would otherwise be testifying for you i don't think that's an overwhelming task to perform if you choose not to call that expert you know going in that um choosing not to call that expert carries that possibility 
I, I think it just adds another layer of variety to the case, and maybe we'll see it in a round or two. Who knows? And the last thing is that uh, because you've divided up these two different defendants and you know when people choose to go negligence on the part of the winery, um, as you mentioned, the defendant is in fact the wine, uh, the winery, not Harper Martini. Um, so in those cases, Harper Martini is unavailable. And one of the big advantages that defenses have seen, and one of the you know, if you look at any of the call order, uh, the call data over the past couple of years, the defendant gets called in an overwhelming number of trials. So what was the decision? to not have that defendant available to testify. Obviously, if it was a negligence case, they wouldn't directly be the defendant, but to make them unavailable in that case. What what, what went into that decision? It was basically what you said, that like we're seeing defendants called in almost every round and to add a little bit of variety, to add a strategic layer that if a plaintiff team, because, you know, it's an interesting, it's a real strategic choice. Is the defendant testifying and the scores that, the defendant will get on direct and as the witnesses direct going to be outweighed by my what's always the best cross for the plaintiff prosecution is their defendant cross. So, you know, if a prosecute, if a plaintiff team wants to make that strategic calculation that they think that their cross could be outweighed by the scores that the defendant gets on direct, they now have that strategic option. I don't know if how teams are going to play that or not, because I think that most plaintiff attorneys, they dream of cross-examining the defendant. That's that's their favorite cross usually. So I, I don't know how many teams are going to want to take advantage of that, but we thought the option should at least be there. And I think that it, it creates more variety and makes it so that you just can't win with just calling the defendant every time. You have to at least have one set of scenarios prepared where the defendant isn't testifying and you're relying on other witnesses. Mike, I actually kind of want to follow up on something um, that Drew asked you about a few questions ago. And I think I'm really happy that you all are thinking a lot about variety. I didn't necessarily share the belief from two years ago with Kozak with the rounds getting repetitive. Um, But I do think it's important for a case almost to leave room for a case to breathe and evolve as the season goes on. And I think, you know, what now, I guess, four or five years ago in the Riley Winter case, which I think was a great case. But I do think there are examples of some cases that could get um, repetitive. But I have sort of a concern related to the dual defendants thing. So, you know, when the uh, Bancroft and Covington case was out, you know, it was a year. It was the year after we had made orcs for the first time, and we were still very much like a sort of a nuts and bolts operation. You know, like things could sort of go off the rails at any moment. And I remember how hard it was to keep people on defense because of the dual defendants thing and the situation of just having so much material to keep track of. And it it was really challenging to, you know, as a program that at that time was much smaller and much less experienced than we are now. Um, I mean, we had a lot of attrition that year. It was probably one of our worst attrition years just because it was such a challenging thing. That's, I'm not saying that to say you guys did something wrong, but is there the, are those conversations happening when you sort of say, okay, the stool defendant thing makes sense. Is there a conversation that happens like, okay, let's, let's really think about this and make sure that this isn't too much uh, so that it's fair to sort of the entire gamut of teams that do AMTA. Absolutely. That conversation happened. And it was a particular point with me because Bancroft and Covington, we spent a lot of time 
preparing our Avery Bancroft defense a lot. And we used it one round all year at an invitation. I'll never, so that, that absolutely was in my head the whole time. And I, I do appreciate that concern. I think that one of the things that made that especially difficult was that you had two different testifying defendants who were really talking about two completely different things, where at least here you don't have two defendants going off two different rails completely. You'll have just the winery as the defendant, but it's not like you're going to have another witness with this long deposition or interrogation or anything like that who's now in the same position of like having to essentially learn to defend in parts. So I think there is that difference. And, and I do think that unlike with Bancroft and Covington, I'm not going to get into details here, but I think there are arguments that you can make that apply on the defense side that apply to both theories. And so I think the work is at least going to be somewhat less than that case. Yeah, I think I, I think that last point is a fair one. And I, I've obviously, you know, I mean, it's been a couple of years since I've looked at Bancroft and Covington, but I know more about that case than I know about this one. But I do think that's true. And it's good to hear those conversations are happening. Um, one other sort of philosophical question before we, we continue with uh, some other ones. And this is... This is kind of a strange direction to take this conversation in, but who would I be if I didn't occasionally take our conversations in strange directions? Um, I was noticing as I was doing the outline that we're now on a three-year run with this case um, of, and I'm excluding nationals cases here for a second, so of the main case that the vast majority of the community does. We're on a three-year run of death, and we are on a four-year run of either death or attempted murder. Um, you know, because we have this case, then we had Ryder, and then Kozak, and then Hendricks. Um, and, you know, Drew and I and other guests have joked on this podcast about, uh, like, sort of Amta's bloodlust and, like, how we all cheer. I think we played a clip um, one time of everyone cheering before they announced the um, topic. I think it was maybe for for Ryder or for Hendricks. Um, this is more of a broad question to you as a someone who's got a lot of experience writing cases. Do you have any concerns about like us now being on a couple year run of, of focusing on like, well, not every case was a murder case at the end of the day, these cases are really about who killed someone, you know, like that, that's the issue is who's responsible for this death, whether it's through murder or, or civil liability. Um, do you have any concerns that maybe we're focusing on that a little bit too much? I mean, I think it's always a good frame of mind to want to do a variety of cases. And I think that we, when we did Riley Winter, that was certainly one of the things that was highly on the committee's mind because I forget what the death run was at that point, but there was, you know, a desire to let not, let's not do something with death. And then, of course, one of the pieces of feedback we got was it would have been better with somebody dead, with the victim dead. I mean, I think that what death brings to the table is that you're able to argue the case from an emotional perspective. I think it just brings a level of passion and emotion that, you know, a discrimination case, especially in a fake setting with a person, you know, I think that the students like the being able to show a picture of a victim, get emotional, have your crying witness, all those things that come to bear when you have death involved in the case that, aren't available when you're dealing with a tort that doesn't involve death. That being said, I'm fully open 
to non-death the next time around. I'm not saying I have a preference one way or the other, but if somebody makes a proposal that doesn't involve death, and I think it's, especially if it's something we haven't done before and it can be super interesting and super fun, like let's go down that road. I mean, I, my preference isn't strong one way or the other, but I do think there are things that death brings to the table that the students tend to enjoy. You know, the thing that's interesting about the this death issue is, like, at least to me, and I think that everything you said, uh, Galf, I, I agree with to a certain extent, but I think that my concern with it, and in, in kind of talking to this, and I'm glad that you brought it up, Ben, it's just that I think that we all love to play these super character flashy, funny witnesses, and I know I've seen posts about this before um, on Mock Trial Confessions and uh, in other places, but sometimes the, this stuff can be really like personal for people. Um, if it's something that anyone ever relates to. And I think that when you get that like witness that's trying to be really telling lots of jokes and having fun, I could see that making this a really negative experience for that person. And I don't even know if this is actually a question that I have, but just to, like, I, I think that I've been kind of revisiting my own thoughts on this because I know that when I was competing, I was like, oh yeah, death, fun, that's awesome. Um, and I don't know, it's just, it's, it's an interesting thing to have been brought up, um, and, and I just I think it's an interesting thing for everyone to kind of revisit of their own uh, personal feelings towards it. Um, that being said, to, to kind of move us forward in the conversation, um, I want to turn our attention to the fact that this case is being tried online. And, you know, I, I think that we've now known for a little while that the cases were going to be all online. But I'm kind of curious, uh, Mike, when you were first beginning to to write the case, were there any elements that you kind of wanted to include that were specific to it being online? Then did you decide not to or to use those in any way? Um, but w what has it being online really affected about the case? I mean, I think we pre-admitted more exhibits than we otherwise would because it's online and because we wanted to make that process easier and give students the opportunity to use exhibits in their opening statements, as was done so effectively, both at trial by combat and one last time. And so visual visual exhibits, pre-admitted exhibits, and those were definitely things that were on our mind. And I mean, I, I think that those were the two primary ones in terms of um, ad adapting the case to an online setting. Um, I, I know that we... We gave thought to the time limits too, but at the end of the day, like I think that any case has a lot of information in it that students need to wade through and get to what's relevant in a brief and um, succinct time. And I don't think that's going to really change whether you're doing a 20-minute direct on Zoom or a 25-minute direct in person. But I think that the visual exhibits is the big one. that we, we And we probably could have done a better job with more visual exhibits. We were trying. But I know that we could have, we, with, with anything, you can do a better job. But I think that that was one of the things we were really trying to do was have exhibits that are, that can be easily, um, put on a screen, manipulated on a screen and all the stuff that I don't know how to do because I'm a freaking Luddite. So, but those, those conversations were ongoing throughout the entire case writing process. You know, it's interesting. You, you obviously brought up the, the time limits and I think that they've been a, a hot topic, uh, to say the least. Um, and, and people have been talking a lot about about those time limits and how they're going to change the way that people are trying cases this year. And you, of course, mentioned the fact that all the evidence is admissible, and I think that that will certainly um, allow you to cut a few corners quickly 
um, when you're trying to enter evidence. But do you think that that is going to, that there are anywhere else in the case that you have specifically done something um, or just in more of a general sense too, to make it more doable for that time? Um, obviously just, you kind of mentioned earlier that you think that it could be done shorter anyway, but I think that, you know, was there anything in the case specifically that you were kind of like, okay, like maybe we can write this a little more easily or just make it a little more direct so that it doesn't take quite as much time? I mean, I think there are certain witnesses that um, have things quoted to them that would arguably get around hearsay objections mm-hmm. that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily have to call another witness to get on and like that type of thing. Um, but as I, I don't want to, you know, give away strategy points or anything like that, but that type of, when, when that type of thing was done, we had that in mind. I was really, I really tried to give more than one witness some good incriminating Harper stuff. So if you, <laughs> regardless of which witness you, not, not, I mean, at least for the most part, if you wanted to call a witness that's available to the plaintiff, they'll have something mean to say about Harper Martin. That's, so we didn't want to pressure teams in that regard, but, you know, I, I think with any case, it's always a challenge to get to the meat of the matter. And my teams have struggled with, you know, time limits as much as anybody. And it frustrates me to no end. And I think that somebody actually said this on Mock Trial Confessions and sort of got hammered for it. But I do think, like, forcing you into this box, it, it is it, it is a good practice for when you are practicing and face having to make a billion arguments into a three-page letter to a judge because you got to get right to the point. You got to do it quickly and you have to do it in a way that's still persuasive and still has proper foundation. And that really is an invaluable skill. And I think that both being online, because now you have to really get the presentation to a point where it's even more effective than it would be in person because being over Zoom itself creates barriers you know, that other otherwise aren't there. But now you're really put in a place where you've got to get to the point quickly. And if you leave yourself open to foundation objections, you're going to get killed. And, and if you leave yourself open to where you elaborate too long on things that really aren't important, you're going to run out of time. And I think that from a standpoint of prepping people for legal practice, that is a good thing. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. I mean, I think that I, I hear your point. I think it is, it is a new challenge i think i i don't sorry i don't think it's a new challenge that there's a time limit i think that this being a shorter time is a new challenge for people that have been doing this for a while and kind of have in their mind how long a direct should be how long a cross should be and this is going to add a new twist for them in that way and i think that that is in many ways exciting and going to be interesting that being said i i, I will say that for my part i i read over the case um, i've even practiced it once and i I really think that this is one of the more complicated cases that I've read um, of the recent AMTA cases. Um, And not that that makes it not doable, but I'm curious whether like there was ever a consideration to like, okay, if we're going to do less time, like maybe we make it just like, you know, a little more straightforward or like don't get into certain issues that can just be like hard to get into. Um, and maybe I'm just, you know, that's just, that's obviously my opinion. Maybe other people have read it and been like, oh, this is obviously really straightforward and easy to do. But I'm just kind of wondering whether there was ever a conversation about the content itself of how we can streamline how to actually argue the case to make it 
more accessible in the time. Right. We streamlined a lot of stuff. So that was always in our mind. I mean, I always, ever since I learned case writing from Toby Heidens and Justin Bernstein, get the, you know, if stuff's irrelevant in the affidavit, for the most part, if especially if it's background, you know, let the students do the background. So that type of thing was always on our mind. But I think that, I do think this case is doable in the time limits that are out there. I mean, one person brought a concern about, you know, a specific witness to me. And my first thought was, well, yeah, if you try to get everything that witness says, it's impossible to do it in the time limits. But if you get the things that are really, really, really important, that are going to make the point that you really want to make, it can easily be done in that time. Limit. And I will, we'll see what happens at the invitationals. I think that they'll give us, I mean, there's going to be so much like experimentation at the invitationals, gen invitationals generally, but I think that how the time limits um, are effectively utilized is going to be something we're going to keep a major eye on. And if more exhibits have to be pre-admitted, if stuff has to be streamlined, like the invitationals, if that has to be done, will give us a clear picture of that. Yeah, I think that's that last point is a good one about invitationals. It's you know it's sort of the thing that nobody really wants to admit, but invitationals kind of serve as just a, a guinea pig in many ways to make sure that things are working correctly and, you know, and, and the case is balanced, things like that. Here's my only, I guess, follow up to, to what you were saying. And that's about sort of gamesmanship over Zoom. Because um, I, I think what you were saying is largely true. I, I do have some concerns about the amount of cross time. That's, I think my, like, I think cutting down on directs, you know, okay, just make a few less jokes, cut out a little bit. Like, yeah, I think we can make that work. But I think most teams are going to opt for close to as much direct time as possible, which is going to leave teams with a pretty dramatic cut in cross time. And while, I mean, you were just saying, okay, it mean, maybe means you can't go for as much. I think we have all seen those cross-examinations where a witness just won't stop talking. Sometimes it's poor witnessing, but sometimes it's just a team being kind of slimy. Um, and I'm wondering, like, I, I'm just, I guess I would say my main concern uh, or just uh, curiosity about this, how this case is going to play out is when you have regular length affidavits with, I think, regular length content. And so while, yeah, you might not be able to go for as much as you want, uh, you know, is this going to be a situation where people are going to be abandoning crosses and having to cut them short pretty frequently when a witness is being combative because you're naturally, everything's going to take longer this year over zoom. And I, I think it just seems a little counterintuitive to me to have the, like a 150 page case shortened time limits and the same amount of content when we know everything is going to take a little longer. That was a little bit of a rambling mess, but I don't know if you have any thoughts, Mike on, on kind of trying to bridge that gap. Yeah. And it's, it, it's difficult with this particular you know, we're getting into things that are beyond just the case committee and, and AMTA decisions as a whole. And obviously I'm here sure. in my individual capacity, not speaking in the context of in the capacity as a director. So I think to the extent that, you know, people have feedback on the time limits, that's really most appropriately directed to the, the rules committee or the president or that's probably the area for, for that. So that's not really the case committee, unfortunately, you know, gamesmanship is gamesmanship and there's not from a rules perspective, the, the case committee, all we can do is write a case and try and make the points as straightforward as possible. And if a witness goes off the rails on cross-examination, that is 
up to the judge and up to the students to rein them in. And hopefully judges will deduct points if it's obvious that somebody is being, uh, being, being, uh, skeezy, but it's, it, it's, it, that's always been a problem. And I share, you know, I, I understand the concern that could be even a bigger problem here. And it's something that the community has to be on the lookout for. I wish I had a better answer. No, no, no. And that's like, I'm, I, first of all, obviously I know the case committee doesn't control a lot of, like you said, a lot of those outside factors. I think it, it will be very interesting to see how things play out uh, this fall with invitationals. I, I think, I guess I think that there's going to be some challenges to three on three zoom trials that we're really not realizing yet. And I'll be interesting to see just kind of how that plays into things. Um, but let's transition uh, sort of in our last little bit here. Uh, we got a lot of really great, great questions from the community. Um, a few of you who sent in really good questions. Uh, you'll hear from Drew or I that we just couldn't ask your question because it was a little too specific or dealt with something we couldn't get into. But we've got a couple of questions we want to cover before we finish up. Uh, I really liked, uh, so Eric Ingram from Colorado College sent two um really good questions. And I want to ask them both one at a time because I think they were both really interesting. Uh, the first one, I'll just read it the way that, that Eric wrote it. He says, I'm very curious if the case committee ever intentionally puts red herrings into the case, facts that seem like they might be important, but don't actually lead anywhere. Or is everything in the case intended to be genuinely useful and should be used in a trial? Um, Mike, what do you, what do you think about that question? I think the former is definitely the situation. Like, must much of an affidavit is not relevant not it is relevant but if you're making a core point on what really gets the meat of the issue you can probably ignore the majority of what's in an affidavit and i think there is a lot of red herrings that are put in a case that really aren't what the most effective arguments are and i think that one of the tasks that students have is to really, really get at what is going to best make my case and what do I have to zero in on and what do I have to ignore? That, that's one of the primary skills of an attorney, going through thousands and thousands of pages of discovery to get to which, what, what, what's really, really, really important. And that is true on a more micro level here. There absolutely are many things in an affidavit that you can put to the side. Especially if you're trying a battery case and you're, and, and stuff is about negligence per se. I will fully admit that I read every case that comes out from AMTA and I highlight things in affidavits where I say, Oh, that's character evidence bait. Oh, that's hearsay bait. And like, I, I, I highlight them and I, I, you know, if anyone wants to use this, go for it. But I, I think that in this case, there were multiple, multiple instances where I read over a witness and I said, yeah, you want me to object to character evidence here and it's going to lose. Or, yeah, you want me to try to make this and someone's going to object to it and I'm going to lose. Um, and I think that it's it's an, uh, like such an interesting question, but I think that at least whenever I read the case, I always, I think that those little red herrings that you put in um, or just like the obviously objectionable things are always very interesting things to find um, as uh, as someone reading it for the first time. But I, I think it is interesting that, you know, you guys do sort of intentionally put some of those things in. Because I, I think, at least from reading the case, it, it makes it fun. And I kind of chuckle at them of like, ah, I'm sure people would really wish they could make this point, wouldn't they? <laughs> yeah, and it's it's such a interesting balance of providing useful information and some random background information. And, of course, 
a Chuggies reference and, <laughs> you know, all of the other things that uh, get tossed in. So uh, Eric's second question, I also really liked, and we've, we've talked about this a little bit, but I think this is something that I would be really fascinated, Mike, to, to know in general terms, of course, because I know you can't talk specifics, but um, Eric's question is, how much do the writers of the case think about possible theories when they're writing? Do they have theories in mind when they write, which they intentionally add facts to help and hurt? Or do they write interesting witnesses without thinking about case theories? Um, and here's sort of my modification to this question, which is, uh, you know, I, I'm working on right now a, a case that I'm writing for a, a high school committee. And I've got like kind of charts that chart out, okay, this is the evidence I think is going to be useful for the state. This is going to be evidence I think going to be useful for the defense. Here's where I kind of think these things are going to go. But I have to imagine that every year a case committee kind of has a sense of theories and things like that. And then people take them in strange directions. So how much do your committees, the committees that you've been on and now the committees you've chaired, try to plan out those things and build in theories? Um, and how much do you put in interesting information that you sort of think, okay, teams might find creative ways to do things with this that we don't necessarily see ourselves right now? I mean, I think a lot of both things happen. I mean, we, we, of course, want to put in good arguments for both sides of the case because if you're inviting a case and it's not immediately apparent to you how somebody could try that case, that's a problem. And so we, we definitely wanted to make sure that there are good and multiple avenues for both sides to go with both theories. I was especially cognizant of it when I edited drafts. I wanted to make sure that there were there were certain places where I really thought that more evidence needed to be and I put it there and other people put it there, but that was always in our minds that like we want to make sure that we have enough of a battery case, we have enough of a negligence per se case. And the and even when adding things that sometimes stretch reality in my mind, I was like, well this is a little silly, but it needs to be there because they need to be able to argue this. And I, I'm guilty of that just like anybody else, but we definitely have it in our mind as we're writing the case and as we're proofreading it. And we got a lot of great feedback from proofreaders this year. Like people notice, like I'm not going to hide the ball on this because people brought it up. That, like originally Genesis wasn't the spouse and we got feedback that like it's a better story if, if the parent is accused of killing the spouse, the monster spouse their child is going to marry rather than the best friend. It's just a better story and it's a more believable story. So yeah, we changed it to go that direction so that we have a battery case that makes more sense. We absolutely keep those things in mind. And it's a great question. Yeah. It's, it's, and that's super interesting. I love that, that like you kind of, it's almost like a test screening and people say, okay, yeah, here's, here's a, um, you know, here's ways to make this maybe narratively flow a little bit. Um, one other follow-up question. Uh, we asked this question to uh, Neil Shewitt last year when he was on talking about the case that his committee wrote. Um, and you guys did the same thing with a unrestricted defendant, which we've now seen several times. Uh, what's the sort of challenges that come with writing an unrestricted defendant? Because I remember talking to Neil about it and he sort of said, yeah, it can be really hard because, I mean, you know, these people really can make up anything under the sun and you'd see some crazy things when you have unrestricted defendants. But of course you want to try to hem things in a little bit so teams can be prepared. 
So um, what was the process like from a committee perspective, uh, preparing the case with an unrestricted defendant and trying to make sure that that balance was struck? I mean, we had the same perspective and my state of mind is always that students are smarter than me and will think of things that we don't think of and will take a defendant in a, in a creative way, you know, anything's on the table. If you, if you don't close something off, somebody's going to think of it, regardless of how offensive the majority of the community may think a theory is. If it's not closed off, somebody's going to do it. And so you, you want to try to stay ahead of the game as possible. We tried our very best to keep our, keep our defendant as, you know, restrictive as possible. I mean, my big worry was that you were going to have a defendant that gets on the stand and say, well, I didn't know pesticide is, is fatal if you put it in wine. So I was like, we better make sure that it is straight out, flat out, even though it seems self-evident to like a 10-year-old, we better make sure that this defendant absolutely unequivocally says, I know that pesticide can kill people. And I know that if you mix it in wine, it could kill people. Because if we didn't say that, I guarantee you, somebody would have gotten on the stand and said, well, I didn't realize this was fatal. I didn't realize it could hurt anybody. I thought it just killed bugs, not humans. So that, that was definitely one thing that was in my mind as we were, as we were narrowing it down. I mean, there were, there were other aspects of it too. I wanted to make sure that I always had in my mind, like, what if they say they don't know this? What if they say that this could have happened? We, maybe we leave this avenue open. Maybe we leave this avenue closed. And that's a constant conversation that's always going back and forth. Well, we got a number of questions uh, about the, the time limits. And of course, we've kind of already covered a lot of that. So I don't want to rehash all of those questions, but I, I will ask one um, that, that I kind of read and thought was kind of interesting. And this was from someone that actually wanted to remain anonymous. Um, but they asked, how do you think, uh, Mike, how do you think the case would look differently if there weren't these time limits? Do you think that there are things you would have changed or, or how would it look, do you think? That's an excellent question. I think the fewer exhibits would have been pre-admitted. I don't know if we would have made affidavits longer because honestly, like, I, I think that a good case is a case that, that has a lot of information in it that could still, when you distill it down, could be tried within, you know, a reasonable time limit. I don't know that, like, we had, in, I, I at least can't think of any information that we would have added that we kept out. I will say that. I can't think of any information that would have been important that we would have added that we kept out because of shorter time limits. So we, we were trying to write a great case. And to, and I think that with, I, I, I again emphasize that I think it's doable. If the invitationals prove that to be incorrect, then we will change it. But there's no information that it's least coming to mind that we were, that we were on the cusp of putting in that we chose to keep out because of time limits. Well, another question that, that I'll ask, and this was kind of a, a collaboration from a lot of different uh, questions that we got about uh, some of the, the defense arguments that I'll, I'll phrase as this. Uh, so basically, a lot of people had the sense that a lot of the potential defense arguments that could be made seemed like they go more to reasonable doubt than to something that's more likely than not or by a preponderance of the evidence. And obviously, we heard from Justin in the past that whenever he writes criminal cases, he writes it to basically assume this person is guilty and and let, you know, reasonable doubt, you can find it in the smallest crevice um, and, and people can kind of figure that out for themselves. But I kind of want to ask you, um, when it's a civil case, how do you write a defense 
theory or argument? What what is the the idea behind it? Because you know, if you can't write this person is clearly guilty, that would be kind of too hard for a, a civil case. What is the kind of in between level then that you use? It's difficult because we, for the most part, see natural defense biases because the defense goes second and they don't have a burden, even in a preponderance of the evidence setting. And so when it's not just a question of who wins the verdict, but who scores the most points, you have to take that into account. So yes, so, and people have made this argument to me directly. It's like, well, yeah, this, and this, this defense expert would do great in a reasonable doubt setting, but here it's preponderance. Like how come they're not stronger? Because if we made them stronger, it's not that plaintiffs would win more verdicts. It's that they'd score higher in rounds uh, on a more consistent uh, – or defense teams would score higher in rounds on a more consistent basis, and the bias would likely be even stronger. And I think that that's – and I think people are coming at it from a very logical perspective. Like the evidence should nearly be 50-50 if you're trying to make a case balanced and it's preponderance of the evidence. But if you did that, and if you gave the defense that much evidence or that much ammunition, where it literally is almost 50-50, like you're going to see a bias that's probably through the roof. And whereas making things weaker, as was I think shown in Kozak and shown in cases before that, you still get the relative balance that you want. And that's what we're going for at the end of the day. It's not a question of who wins the verdict. It's a question of who wins the round. And I think that there's many, there's going to be many cases where plaintiff meets their burden, but defense wins the round and vice versa. And I think that if it was, if you gave the defense enough ammunition to where they could defeat a preponderance case, it's, it, it, the, I think the bias would be very, very difficult for the plaintiff to overcome. Well, I think we've kind of gone through a lot of interesting things tonight. And, and sort of lastly, Mike, I just want to say thanks because this is, these types of conversations are really interesting. And obviously we spend so much time as a community digging into these case files. And it's been such a privilege now, this is our third year in a row, having a chance to talk to the case committee chair when we talked to you two years ago and then talked to Neil last year. Um, and I just love getting to hear how these things come together. Because of course, for most of us, we just, one day they show up and then our next six months are consumed by trying to dig into it. Uh, so thank you to the work that uh, you all do on the case committee. You've had an amazing committee this year. I'm imagining that that the work, you know, while it was a short period of time, I'm sure that you had a ton of people doing a ton of different things uh, and clearly, you know, did a great job producing this product. So thank you for the work that you do making all that happen. And of course, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And I also, I want to say one thing, like we put in this, we do this for free. It's a labor of love. But that doesn't immunize us from criticism. We, we read what's online. We read what's on mock trial confessions. We read the emails that are sent to us. Like, by all means, if you think something can be improved, give us feedback. If you have a concern about something, you never have to be – no student should ever feel any compunction about criticizing at least the case committee online in however way they choose as long as you're not throwing personal insults at somebody. But nobody – I, I want to be very clear about that because I think that, you know – while it's easy to say, oh, we're volunteers and you, you don't appreciate the hard work we have, I'm not doing this for appreciation. I'm doing this because I like it. And, and we're doing it as a service to students. And it's important that that service be provided well. And if that service can be improved, if the case can be improved, we want to hear how. And so I really do want to emphasize that.
that we are as open as anybody to criticism, especially constructive criticism online. And it's always a pleasure to come on podcasts like this and to communicate with students about how best we can improve the cases and other aspects of what we do. Let me ask you this really quick. I know you said you guys read everything, but what would be, can you give students the ideal method to contact the case committee in the event that they perhaps have some constructive feedback or questions? The ideal, the especially since I don't read impeachments anywhere near to the extent I read perjury, read perjuries when perjuries was a thing. I will admit that because I don't have an impeachments account yet. I got to put that up. But um, the email address for the civil case committee is amta.civilcase at collegemockfile.org. If I butchered that, it's on the website. You send an email to that email address, it goes directly to me, and I will respond. All right, fantastic. Well, and that last thought is is well appreciated because I know how hard the case committee works, and I think it is really important for students to feel like they can reach out to people, and I have no doubt that you and your peers on the committee will um, listen and respond and, and be thoughtful in, in you know hearing out any student questions or concerns. Well, as you mentioned, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show, Mike. Thank you so much uh, to our listeners. Thank you, as always. Drew and I, of course, are continuing to work on uh, episodes uh, for this season and discussing everything that's coming up. And I'm excited. I mean, we are, as we're recording this, about a month away from you know our first invitationals really getting underway. So before too long, we're, we're going to have actual AMTA case data to break down for the first time since March. Two weeks, not a month. Two weeks. Are there invitationals in two weeks? There are invitationals the first weekend of October. Yeah, there's some crazy people that are doing it in October. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I, now that I think about it, I remember getting invited to one and thinking, oh, I'm an <laughs> idiot, but I'm not that dumb. <laughs> um, so no, team, I mean, teams who are doing that, that's 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 fantastic. Good for you. I, I don't have it in me. But all right, so two weeks, we'll start to get case data. It has been far, far too long since we've gotten to do that. Mike, it's a pleasure to talk to you as always. Uh, and everyone listening, thank you for listening. Until we're in your feed next time, this has been The Mock Review with Ben and Drew. 